Um, this morning's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, and you'll find it on the Church Bible on pages 830. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour in God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one, who, the one to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Good morning. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. The birth of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Our third Bible reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 16. <coughs> Um, it is on page 939 of the Pew Bible, or you can follow it behind. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able 
and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need the goal is equality as it is written the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little thanks be to god who put into the heart of titus the same concern that i have for you amen thanks jan so much I just want to say hi and welcome also. As a young person, and as I look out, I can see lots of young people here. As a young person, I used to long for Christmas. I think it started from 1st of December. I wanted to count the days down. Couldn't wait. And when Christmas Eve finally arrived... Uh, my sister and I would just get pillow slips out of the linen closet and put them at the end of our bed. I found it very hard to go to sleep. Uh, I was so excited. We ha- I had a bedroom window and I wanted to try and stay awake to see Santa. I hadn't seen him before, but each year I thought this will be the year that I might be able to see him. Uh, it was often hot at night, uh, difficult to sleep, But then the morning would come and, I don't know, 2.30, 3, maybe, maybe half past 5 or 6, wake up and I'd see and feel that there were presents in the pillow slip. So I go in and I wake my sister, we sit on one of our beds and begin to explore. It was so exciting. And then our relatives would come for lunch. I'd already eaten too much at this stage, (laughs) but it was often a baked dinner. 
that I wanted to make through to the plum pudding because my auntie would put sixpences and sometimes even a shilling in the plum pudding. Even though I was stuffed, I always had a second helping. <laughs> and then we would have all our relatives sitting around and giving out presents. But as I grew, the anticipation of Christmas lost some of its appeal. The awkwardness in saying thank you to relatives for gifts that I didn't want. <laughs> and yet trying to present this image of being really grateful and yet feeling inside myself uh, the angst of that. But as I grew, I began to learn that in fact the joy of Christmas wasn't in getting, but the joy in Christmas was the anticipation of what I might give and the response of other people to that. Christmas is a time of giving and celebration. And yet for some, the reality of cost and living pressures means that it is a real struggle and not much desire to celebrate at all. Rather than being excited, many are consumed by the stress of whether they can afford rent or mortgage payments. Along with that, there is the concern of how can they pay for increasing food and energy and fuel prices. Indeed, parents worry about whether they can actually buy any gifts for children. And then not to mention the emotional drain for families where they are estranged and what that means. For some, the cost of living pressures can be overwhelming. There is no brain space or emotional capacity to focus on anything else around them. It's just so consuming. While others who may not be feeling the pressure in the same way may be rushing around trying to prepare for Christmas. They don't even notice what's in front of them. A youngish man stood outside a Washington DC subway a few years ago. He was wearing jeans, a t-shirt, had a baseball cap on, and from a small case he pulled out a violin. He placed the open case down in front of him and threw some coins and notes in as seed money and he began to play. For the next 43 minutes, the violinist performed six great classical pieces. There was a reporter there, and the reporter counted 1,097 people passing by, almost all of them rushing, not taking time. There were two people who stopped. No one knew apart from these two people, that the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the world's leading classical musicians. And on this morning, Joshua Bell played one of the most valuable violins ever made. The reporter recorded over the 43 minutes, seven people stopped to listen for at least a minute, 27 people gave money, 
In a concert, Joshua Bell may be paid $1,000 per minute for his work. This day, he received $32.17. Apart from the two people, one who had been to a Joshua Bell concert and recognised him, the other who had learnt violin when he was young and realised there was something special. Apart from those two people, no applause, no interest, just indifference. People's busyness and anxiety meant they had little time to appreciate whose presence they were actually in. Neither was Jesus recognised. No one expected a king, the Messiah, the rescuer of the world to be born in a barn. No one expected to be born in some outback place that was unimportant and insignificant. The Apostle Paul wrote in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Paul reminded the Corinthians of the grace found in Christ for they were no longer captivated by God's grace. Grace is God's overwhelming, abundant and generous gift that is undeserved, unmerited and always initiated by God. Christ's grace is sufficient to meet every need and every situation that we face. And the clearest expression of God's grace is seen in his birth and in his death. Jesus, immortal, shared equality and intimate oneness with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus, the one through whom and for whom everything was made. Jesus, the one who owns everything, is everywhere and knows all. Jesus is rich. If we were just to take Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, some of the richest men in the world, and put them all together, all their wealth, it would not even be the size of a speck of a dust compared to Jesus' richness. And yet, for your sake, for my sake, he became poor. The eternal God became a finite human being, born into a messy, ungrateful, rebellious, uncaring and sinful world so that we who are spiritually and morally poor might become rich. To try and grasp what that means, C.S. Lewis spoke about the magnitude by saying the eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man but before that a baby and before that a fetus inside a woman's body if you want to get the hang of it, think 
how you would like to become a slug or a crab. Can you picture that? We can't. But we get a concept to give up my humanity to become a slug that people would be happy just to step on because it's revolting. Nabil Qureshi, a Muslim convert who wrote the book Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, had a friend who was attracted to parts of Christianity but couldn't accept the idea of God being a human being. One time she asked, how can you believe Jesus is God if he was born through the birth canal of a woman and that he had to use the bathroom? Aren't these things beneath God? Qureshi then asked, Sahar, let's say that you are on your way to a very important ceremony and you're dressed in your finest clothes. You're about to arrive just on time, but then you see your daughter drowning in a pool of mud. What would you do? Let her drown and arrive looking dignified? Or rescue her, but arrive at the ceremony covered in mud? Of course, I would jump in and save her said Sahar. Qureshi then asked, let's say there were others with you. Would you send someone else to save her or would you save her yourself? If she is my daughter, how could I send anyone else? They would not care for her like I do. Qureshi said, if you, being human, love your daughter so much that you were willing to lay aside your dignity to save her, how much more can we expect God, if he's our loving father, to lay aside his majesty to save us? Sahar could no longer remain a Muslim, but accepted Jesus as her saviour. Our response to God becoming human should be that the whole orientation and focus of our lives is now centred on and compelled by Christ. In a hymn that uh, I really appreciate, Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross, ends with the words, Where hope, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The whole context of this about Jesus who was rich becoming poor is in the context of a chapter where Paul is dealing about a monetary collection as Paul made gospel trips around the Roman Empire, he encouraged churches to give to help believers in Jerusalem who were suffering famine and persecution. Paul had previously urged the Corinthian believers to give. And while they had promised to do so, it had not been forthcoming. We read a little bit about that at the end of his first letter. Now, as he writes this letter, he reminded them of their promise and gave two examples as motivation for them. 
One of the examples was about the grace of God, which we just talked about. The other example was of Macedonian churches, like the church at Philippi and the church at Thessalonica, of which we have letters Paul wrote to them in the Bible. Many Macedonian believers were persecuted. They had their land taken from them. So Paul called their poverty extreme. In comparison, the believers in Corinth, in comparison, were extremely wealthy. And yet it was the Macedonian churches who gave. We read as Paul begins the chapter, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. The Macedonians did not use their poverty as an excuse. Rather, they increased their generosity. We read in the following verses, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in in this service to the saints. It may sound funny, it may sound wrong, but this passage is not about money. Rather, it is about giving. The difference is that money deals with what we have or what we don't have but want, whereas giving is a response to what we have received. In Mizoram, in India, in 1914, There was a group of women who were unable to contribute money to the church to help the communities. So they decided they would put a handful of rice each day. It was a sacrifice, and yet when pooled over time, it enabled the church to reach out to others with a message of hope and grace. The principle was that Jesus was a guest at every meal. So they were giving the handful of rice to him. The Macedonian church has pleaded to be generous, which surprised Paul. It's interesting, I don't go into town very much, but when I do, there seems to be more people on the street asking for money, begging for money, I've never once come across someone who begged to give me money. Not once has anyone said, please, can I give you this? The Macedonian church has pleaded to be generous, which surprised Paul. In verse 5, they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. For the Macedonians, it wasn't about a budget. But like the women of Mizoram, it was about giving to Jesus. God doesn't want us to give what we don't have. 
but how we do give offers insight into our heart. We read in verses 12 to 15, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Christmas is a time of giving. As we remember and in response to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And when we think about equality and we think about the world we live in, there is a lot of inequality. Yet giving is not only financial. Someone two weeks ago gave a washing machine away that they no longer want. A good washing machine. Someone gave their time to pick up the washing machine and take it to somebody else's place. People give listening ears to others when they want to unburden. People give their skills and their counsel. The parable of the Good Samaritan shows that wherever we come across needs, there is an opportunity to give. Wherever we come across needs, there is an opportunity to give. But of course, Christmas does not stop with the birth of Jesus, but points to Easter. Jesus was born to give his life for us who are undeserving of grace and under God's wrath for our willful sinfulness. But he calls us to follow in response and give because of what we have received. And as the Corinthians were urged to give, Paul gave an assurance. It's in the next chapter, chapter 9. He writes, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As we give, God will give what we need to abound in every good work. This is not about money, but that God will provide all that we need to live for him. In that verse, we find all grace in all things at all times having all that you need. Christmas is a time and an opportunity to give to family and friends. But it's also a time to give to others who struggle because of the cost of living or Christians who are overseas who are persecuted 
Look for opportunities to give and share. Not because you have to, but because you've been a recipient of God's grace. Please let me pray. Now, Father, we confess that we can be like the Corinthians and not appreciate your grace. Please forgive us. Now, Father, we have a high level of justice when we have been treated as we don't think we should be, but often a low level of justice when other people are not treated as they should be. Please forgive us. We pray that your grace would indeed captivate us, remind us and reassure us of your character and that of having all things in having the Lord Jesus. Now, Father, we confess that we think of things so temporally in the moment. And we acknowledge before you that in one sense that's understandable. But please widen our vision to think eternally of all we have in Christ because of his death for eternity. Thank you for your grace in giving. Thank you for the example of Macedonian churches. And thank you that you don't make us feel guilty of giving what we don't have, but the opportunity of giving because of what we have received. Amen.